Uh, tonight we are in uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, and we'll be in uh, chapter 6 for um, a couple of weeks at least, two or three weeks. Uh, this, this is known in Scripture as the Sermon on the Plain. That's P-L-A-I-N, uh, not the other variety, which would be confusing. Um, and this is kind of a, it, compared a little bit to like the Sermon on the Mount we hear of a lot. We don't hear about the Sermon on the Plain as much, but in the Gospel of Luke, uh, this is an extremely important passage. In fact, I would argue that this passage and the Sermon on the Mount uh, might be the most important verses in Scripture, at least. Uh, they're the, some of the most formative for me and challenging to me. Um, and so what we're going to do tonight is walk through this kind of opening uh, of the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, next week we'll continue in the teaching. Um, but I want to read it one more time. And, uh, and we'll kind of, again, try and stand in front of this and really uh, try and understand what it's trying to tell us here tonight. It says this, uh, again, uh, Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 26 says this, He came down with them and stood on a level place. And this is an important image all throughout the book of Luke. Even Jesus' first sermon talks about the leveling down, of the, knocking down the mountains and straightening the paths, kind of getting everyone into the same place, uh, which is what ha- is happening here for Jesus' kind of first a sermon uh, to his disciples. He stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, Tyre and Sidon are not very, uh, not very uh, lovely places in the Jewish imagination. In fact, they're kind of used as examples, uh, almost like a Sodom and Gomorrah kind of thing. Uh, so you've got a lot of different kinds of people here. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. Verse 20, then he looked up at his disciples, his disciples who he just chose in the verses previous to this. He looked up at his disciples and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, or when they exclude you, or revile you and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets." But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when, uh, when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. Again, I really believe that these passages, along with the Sermon on the Mount, might simultaneously be the most important, some of the most important verses in Scripture, uh, maybe the most dangerous and almost certainly the most universally ignored. And I understand why on all counts. As I was just reading that passage to you aloud, if you were really listening, your brain started spinning a little bit. Because these are challenging things to hear, right? You started to really measure what it said and maybe started to do the math and try to figure out, am I blessed or am I cursed? in these verses. Is this good news or bad news for me, or is it both? Do I take this seriously? Do I take it literally? Do I ignore it? What do I do with words like this from Jesus? And the more 
honestly, you begin to study, and if you really kind of drill down and get into the details of these verses and these blessings and these woes, you begin to pull them apart individually and really get down into them, I think it only gets more difficult. There is something both simultaneously comforting and disturbing about these blessings and woes. And obviously that's intentional. That's how they're designed to work. Now keep in mind, again, Jesus just chose his disciples. Right? Functionally, this is like their first day on a new job. They just said yes to leave everything else behind and follow this rabbi. And then they've watched as Jesus is healing people, casting out demons, doing miracles. Literally anyone that touches him is experiencing a miracle. Their heads have to be spinning. This is not how the world works. This is not how reality works. They have to be trying to grapple with this new thing that's going on around them. And so Jesus pulls them aside and teaches his disciples. He pulls them from the crowd and he teaches them these things. He gives them, I believe what he's doing here, is giving them the context for this new reality that they're now witnessing. I I think that we should take these verses and we should think of them as the opening brushstrokes of the backdrop upon which Jesus will paint everything else later on. I think it sets the context for everything else. Without this backdrop, the details that he continues to paint won't make very much sense. Right? In the, uh, if you were writing a movie or writing a book, I feel like I'm going to smack myself in the chin with this. That would be funny for everybody. In storytelling, this would be called world building, right? This is what happens uh, when uh, you're reading some kind of novel or you're watching some kind of movie that requires a lot of explanation of the history around it, right? If you've ever gotten into Tolkien or The Lord of the Rings or any of this stuff, you know how verbose he could be, right? How much time he spends building those worlds. Building, a world building is what sets the poles for the world in which the rest of the story will be told, right? To ignore it or to skip it is to risk missing everything that comes after it. It's not necessarily important for all stories, but world building is very important for some, right? Uh, that's why you want to be careful about watching the sequel of something you haven't seen the first one. Now, you may be like, I'm thinking of watching Hangover 2, and first I would tell you, don't waste your time. But second, I would say, if you didn't watch the first one, you're going to make it. It's going to be okay. Not a whole lot of world building that went on that would, you know, not help you to make sense of the second movie. There's a lot of things that don't make sense about the second movie, but that probably wouldn't be it. But if you wanted to watch Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones or, you know, Harry Potter or something like that and start halfway through the series, I would tell you don't do it. Because you have no idea who anyone is, you don't know their history, you don't understand the backdrop, you don't know how the world works that this story is, is going on within, right? And you might just be watching it and think, oh, this is just old England, and then what's a dragon? Where do the dragons come from? Why, what's going on, right? You've got to understand the world. You may wonder, why would he want to get rid of that ring? That thing is awesome. Keep the ring, right? Why don't Luke and Leia just get married? It's obvious they're both very attractive people. If you ignore the world that is built, then you will miss everything else. As we say often here, context matters. And I believe Jesus is trying to set the context. And it is very risky to isolate these verses or to not recognize that they are, in fact, I believe, an introduction and not a conclusion. I think Jesus starts the sermon with them for a reason. 
Because if you isolate them or you treat them as a conclusion, it totally changes the way you read it. And often, at least the way I've heard it, these blessings and woes are treated as some kind of final categorization of people, right? And that's a tough thing to read, and so you ignore it. Or you start separating the sheep and the goats. You see this list, you take it as the final word, you take it as the conclusion, and you figure out where you fit. Are you poor or are you rich? By what standard? What does poor and rich mean now compared to then? Right? But I need to figure out, am I poor or am I rich? So I know whether or not I'm in the woe category or I'm, you know, hashtag blessed. I need to know. Are you hungry or are you full? Well, most of us are in trouble by that standard because most of us aren't really missing many meals. Uh-oh, woe for us. And then these verses can easily be weaponized and used to rank each other and separate each other and figure out which side you're on one way or the other. And this approach, of course, really doesn't make any sense if you keep carrying it out and you keep thinking about it. After all, what if I am poor but I'm also full and I'm happy and people talk well of me? What if I'm wealthy but I'm also weeping and people revile me because of Jesus? Do my tear ducts go to heaven and my stomach burn for eternity? Doesn't make much sense when you start breaking it apart, right? And that kind of binary thinking usually doesn't hold up in good theology, I found, as the, as the determiner of all good theology. <laughs> That's a very, very cocky statement right there in the middle of my sermon. In general, I think it's safe to say that if you end up with these kind of weird questions uh, produced by your interpretation of a particular scripture, you've probably missed the point somewhere in there. I don't think that's what Jesus was trying to get at. It's also safe to say that if this text is used to create a list of friends and enemies, it's being misused. After all, the very next thing that's taught, the next verses, which we will talk about next week, are about the love of enemy. Right? This teaching is supposed to set up and lead to the love of enemy, not create a more specific list of who they are. Again, I believe Jesus is world building here. And maybe you're tempted to ask, what world building? Why would Jesus need to build a world? We have a world. He is the word incarnate. He's already in this world. We have a context. We don't need another world, do we? Yes. Yes, we do. Jesus seems to think so, and I think most of us would agree. We have a world already, and it is very broken. I think in a very deep way, we all know that things don't work the way they're supposed to work. Now, the way I was taught about Jesus growing up, you would have thought that he only really talked about two things, uh, morals and the sinner's prayer. All he talked about is what we could or couldn't do, don't drink, smoke, cuss, hang out with people, but do, etc. And the sinner's prayer, which is what we called the prayer you were supposed to say, that then you say it and you mean it and you go to heaven, even though that's not technically in Scripture uh, in that way. And all that is fine, but it is not what Jesus spent all his time talking about. If you read the words and the teachings of Jesus, he does not spend much time on that. He spends most of his time world building, which is to say Jesus never stops talking about the kingdom of God, the world Jesus wants to build. Jesus never stops ruminating on what life would look like if God actually got God's way. Right? If this dome, if this domain, if this place was ordered by and operated according to God and God's love. A domain where God was king. God got his way, right? God's kingdom. 
Jesus comes to this world, it seems, to enlighten us and to invigorate our imagination and to start building a new world here and now. It's at the center of everything he says and does. It's all about God's kingdom. And what is this new world like? How do we recognize this kingdom of God? It is the place where everything this world uplifts and rewards as important and necessary and uh, eternal is not. It is where wealth, lack of want, being well-liked and endlessly happy are not the highest goods. In fact, this is the kingdom where if those are the things that you focus your entire life on, oi. And I say oi because that's the literal translation of the word here for woe. It's a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew kind of expression of grief. Oi, or ugh, or oi vey, or woof, right? It's not cursed or like avenged. It's not God's kill list. Just ugh, what a waste, right? It's the, it's the sound that comes out when we experience tragedy, when someone is taken before their time. It's that sound that says this is not the way it's supposed to work. Oh. And the good news here is that if you're lacking resources, if, you are, if no one likes you because of, of your commitment to God, or if you're unsuccessful by the world standards, or you feel unloved or, or unwanted, or that there's no space for you, good news, another world is coming. There is enough love, there is enough grace, there is enough hope, and everything else that lasts for you. Yes, you. The one that the world tells over and over again that there's not enough for you. This is the world building that Jesus is trying to do. Not to create a list for you to measure yourself by and try and figure out which category you're in, but to imagine a world that works differently. It is said that the kingdom of God comforts the disturbed and disturbs the comfortable, which is a way of saying that the kingdom of God is that place where God's will is done here on earth as it is in heaven. It is that place where everything gets flipped on its head. It is antithetical to this world in all the best ways that we know are most true and we know that we need. And this is why I think it's safe to say that these verses are important and dangerous and also mostly ignored. Because they can be weaponized very easily but more often, at least on average in my own life, I just ignore them because I don't know that I really want this kind of world sometimes. I mean, more often than not, I think I prefer to have Jesus a decorator and not an architect. To be honest, I've largely benefited from the world as it is, right? I happen by whatever accident of history to have been born in the most powerful place during the most successful time in history. I have a home and a family and I can turn on the heat or I can turn on the air conditioner. I don't miss any meals. I'm not truly lacking anything that I need. Historically speaking, I hit the cosmic lottery. Most days I'm not looking for a new world, right? I'm more the comfortable trying not to be disturbed than I am the disturbed trying to be comforted. I want to build in this world and I want to put a nice shiny coat of Jesus paint on it to make me feel better about it. I don't really want Jesus rebuilding anything most days. Hasn't always been true, 
but often it's true for me. I want to engage in power and money and influence and success and comfort and everything else, just like everyone else. Just find me a way to get that Jesus veneer on it. That'll give it some credibility. That'll make me feel good about it. That'll help me justify things that I probably shouldn't justify. But at the end of the day, it's the same world. It's the same product. I just swapped out the barcode. Jesus is trying to build new worlds for us. I don't think these blessings and woes are here to help us make a list of who is good and who is bad and then figure out how to put yourself and everyone else in one category or the other. Because the truth is, this line of blessing and oi, (laughs) woe, runs right down the middle of all of us. I fall into any one of these categories on any given day for any number of reasons. I think Jesus paints this world because we need a more compelling image of what the world can look like. We need the disturbing upside-down blueprint of a new kingdom Jesus came to build. Otherwise, what is the point really? Right? What is the point really? If all of our politics, our finances, our relationships, our power dynamics, everything exercised in Jesus' name function the exact same way as everything else in the world does and the exact same way it would if Jesus wasn't involved, then, ugh, what's the point? Because we've got a kingdom, it's just not God's. So that's the challenge of these verses, I believe. Not to try and locate yourself on this list, judge whether you've made it or not made it, whether you are the sheep or the goat. None of those things. It is to wake us up to a new kind of world. And then we are challenged to lean into this world that Jesus is trying to build here. And I encourage you to lean into it as we study it these next few weeks. Don't try to locate yourself on this blessing versus woe continuum. Rather, open your imagination towards a world that does not work in the same way this one does, and that is good news. Imagine a new world where the first are last and the last are first, where hatred is met with love and enemies are treated as friends. Imagine a better world, a better kingdom, and maybe then we can start living into it. Because one of the most outrageous claims Jesus will make is that this new, weird, upside-down, backwards kingdom is more true and more lasting than anything we have known before. A new world is not only possible, it is available, and it is inevitable. We're just here to give everyone a sneak peek of it now. Let's pray. God, we ask for better imaginations. God, we ask that in the middle of the world as it is, we can imagine the world as it should be. That in the middle of all these kingdoms of the world, big and small, that we navigate all day, every day, that we might always keep before us the kingdom of God. A kingdom whose values, whose morals, whose ethics simply do not mirror this world. And may we see that for the good news that it is. May we not invest all of our time and energy and heart into the thing that doesn't really matter. God, help us to envision, live into, and become the first fruits 
of the new world that you are building. God, we do love you. And we ask all these things in your name.